Paul. Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what you did in, the, in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the people and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow, bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over, en over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbours, the scorn and desertion of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back, our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us and made us like a haunt for jackals and covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it, since he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because you, because of your unfailing love. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray together. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for uh, this Psalm from the sons of Korah. And Lord, we pray that as we, uh, as we think about it, as we listen to your words, Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts, that you'd help us again to come to you in humble trust and faith. Lord, we pray that our hearts might sing 
uh, of all your grace that you have uh, shown to us in your beloved son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, I love the Psalms. I, uh, I was speaking uh, a few weeks ago uh, at Worldview and uh, I spoke on a Psalm there and I said at the time then as well that uh, I've just rediscovered the, uh, the Psalms again. I've gone back to reading the Psalms uh, in the morning uh, and I love them because they're so real, aren't they? They're, they're, they're so true to life. They seem to uh, just express what we feel. Uh, they're great because they're useful in helping us to express what we feel when our life is falling apart. And if you're like me, my life seems to be falling apart most of the time, so the Psalms are great. Uh, and, uh, and the Psalms help me to pray, and I know they help lots of other people to pray as well and to cry out to God. Uh, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking uh, in the lead up to Christmas at a number of psalms, just another number of psalms which help us reflect on the nature of the Christian life, uh, what it's about uh, and how we relate to God in our Christian lives. And the psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 44, is a psalm which wrestles with the feeling that God has deserted his people. Uh, to feel deserted and alone is one of the most disturbing emotions, I think, that we can feel. To feel as though we're going through a great trial and nobody is there with us to help us. You know, there's no one that we can ask. There's no one that we can speak to. We're utterly alone, utterly deserted. To be deserted uh, is terrible. To be deserted by people is terrible. But to feel deserted by God is extraordinary. And that's what the people, uh, the sons of Korah who wrote this psalm, that's what they felt. They felt deserted by God. The sons of uh, Korah begin wrestling with that, uh, with that feeling by recounting all the things that God had done for them in the past. So in the past, God had uh, driven out nations before his people. He'd driven out the people from the promised land. Uh, the people didn't do it on their own. They didn't conquer the land on their own. God did it. God, you might remember, parted the Jordan River so that the people could cross on dry land. God sent the commander of the army of the Lord to go before the people and to kind of make the battle uh, their own, to win it on their behalf. God brought down Jericho. God did it. Remember the people, just, they just marched around for seven days. And blew trumpets. I play the trombone. My trombone has never made a city fall down, thankfully. But when they did that, God handed them the city and the land that he'd promised them. Verse 3, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them the victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. God made his people flourish. It started off just one man, just Abraham. God called and attended to millions of people. They grew wealthy. They left Egypt with treasures. They didn't leave empty-handed. They left with half the wealth of Egypt. God did it because he loved them. 
Verse 4, you are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. God's the king and what God says happens. But God is not only the king, but notice he's my king and my God. These people have heard what God has done, but more than just hearing, they've put their trust in God. My king, my God. Verse uh, 6 to 8 contain this beautiful uh, depiction of what it means to trust God, to have this heart of faith. They write, I do not trust in my bow. My sword doesn't bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long. And we will praise your name forever. I gave uh, a number of evangelistic talks at St Andrews this past week. And uh, afterwards I got talking to a lady who'd come along who wanted to evangelise me. Uh, She wanted to uh, tell me the good news uh, about Jesus. Uh, Or not quite the same good news that I had been trying to tell uh, her. Uh, She claimed to know Christ, but... Uh, What she wanted me to know was that if we could just get uh, our teaching right uh, and if we could get our uh, energy centres aligned, then uh, there was no end to what the church could do. Her message was basically, if we get our act together, we can do it. We can change the world. The message of the sons of Korah and the Bible is, I don't trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me the victory. But you give us the victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. You see, it's God who does it. We don't. God hates the human pretension and arrogance which says, I can do it. Because hidden behind that idea is... I can do it and I don't need God. God is superfluous to me. That's the hidden assumption. God is superfluous to me and to my world and to my life. If you don't trust God, you need to trust God. You need to give up trusting everything else because bows and uh, intelligence and hard work and getting, you know, dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, it doesn't work. It, it, it won't save. The sons of Korah look back over the history of what God has done. Take any person, look back over their history. What do you see? You see failure, mistakes. Every person you've ever known and loved and trusted... Every one of them has let you down. You've let yourself down. But the sons of Korah look back over the history of, not a life, but the world. The history of the world. And they see that God has been faithful at every moment. Now everyone else will let you down, but God will never let you down. 
The writers of the psalm didn't trust in themselves or their strength or their power or their cleverness. They trusted God. And many of us are in that same position as well. We can take those first verses of the psalm and relate to what they've said. We've heard, haven't we? We've heard what God has done long ago. We've heard how God drove out the nations, how he rescued people, how he parted the Red Sea, how he delivered his people and gave them what he promised. And more than that, we've heard what God has done since when this psalm was written, how God sent his own son into the world, how he sent his own son to become like one of us, to die on a cross, to take away our sin, to to conquer death and Satan. We've heard that. And many of us have trusted God. And we can say with all our heart, I do not trust in my bow or anything that I've done. But you give us the victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. And yet for the writers of this psalm, that reality only makes their present situation harder to understand. They survey the history of the world, they see what God has done, they've trusted God, And yet they can't understand what's going on at the moment. Look at verse 9. But you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. God had gone out with his people in the past. He had delivered them from their enemies, but now their enemies were winning. It was like Israel had been sold off in a fire sale, you know, when a business goes bankrupt and everything's sold for a pittance. That was Israel. They were sold for nothing. It was like they weren't worth anything to God anymore. They feel rejected. God hasn't really rejected them, but that's how they feel. That's, that's, that's what they think as they look at their situation. Please notice too that this psalm is not an individual lament. It's not an individual cry for help. It's not, the psalm writers are not saying, I'm suffering, what's going on? What they're actually saying is, the people of God are suffering. We're all suffering and we need help. There are lots of psalms which are kind of individual cries for help, but this isn't one of them. This psalm is about the community of God's people being rejected. The community of God's people being humbled. So the application of this psalm to us then is not to each of us as individuals, but the application of this psalm is to us as the community of God's people, as the church of God, or to us as Christians living in Tasmania, or Christians living in Australia, or Christians living in the world. Now, it wouldn't be right uh, to suggest, I don't think, that our situation as Christians living in Tasmania or in Australia is as bad as the people in the days of the sons of Korah. We haven't retreated before our enemies. Uh, We haven't been plundered by them. 
We haven't been sold for a pittance. There have been retreats of sorts, I think we can say that. So the gospel came to Australia uh, just over 200 years ago for the first time. Uh, And when the gospel came, the gospel made great inroads. Churches were planted uh, over the last 200 years in almost every town and city throughout Australia. And yet you drive through every town and city around Australia now and you'll still find the church buildings, but you won't find many churches that are still open. There's been a retreat of kinds, but not like the retreat in the days of the sons of Korah. Not like the retreat during the violent conflicts in England. So after the Reformation in England, Protestants were beheaded. Ministers and congregations were thrown out of their churches or thrown into prison. Our situation is not the same as that. And yet, there are things in this psalm, I think, which resonate deeply with our present experience and which ought to make us go, hmm, something's going on here. Not all the suffering in this psalm is physical. There's a great deal of verbal suffering. Look at uh, verses 13 and 14. You have made us a reproach to our neighbours, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say that that's true to a large extent of living in our society. That Christians are a reproach, the scorn and derision of those around us, a byword among the nations. People shake their heads at us. Christianity is more and more a subject not merely of indifference in our society, but a subject of scorn. So Christians are denigrated and ridiculed. People shake their heads at the stances that we take on things like abortion and homosexuality. People shake their heads at our belief in a crucified and risen Messiah. There are sectors of our community which want to destroy and remove the freedom of Christians to follow Christ in public. Now I think it's possible to overstate the persecutions of Christians in our country. Uh, The media is definitely prejudiced against Christianity. I think that's a fair assessment. But I don't know that there's that same level of malevolence. You know, I don't think the kind of vitriol that you see on Q&A is the kind of vitriol that you encounter, you know, in the shopping centre. But what begins on television becomes normalised within society within a few decades. Remember, uh, remember when Ellen, Ellen, what was that show that she was in? Was it just called Ellen? Remember when that came out? Uh, and it was kind of a bit edgy at first. Uh, you know, it was about a lesbian couple. And now it's kind of run of the mill. I mean, you can't, you can't make a television show these days without a, uh, without a gay couple. 
What begins on television and in the films and in art becomes normalised within society within a decade. But whatever the case is in our society at present, whether we just suffer this verbal abuse, uh, whether it's widespread or not, whether it's uh, as uh, we don't suffer the physical abuse of uh, the sons of Korah, whatever the case is for us at present, please mark down Psalm 44 as a psalm to remember for the future. As a psalm that we might need to use within the next few generations. And maybe you should memorise it too. Because maybe within the next few generations we won't have Bibles in our hands to read it anymore. If the present trends in our society continue, I don't see any reason to expect, uh, any reason not to expect, I should say, that in the lifetime of many of us, Christians will be persecuted quite violently. It will begin as verbal persecution. It will extend to economic persecution. That is, it will become so horrendously expensive to be a church or to be a Christian school. There'll be, there won't be prison sentences, but the fines... Uh, and uh, so on, will be so large that it will be prohibitive to be a public church or a publicly Christian school. It will begin as verbal, it will become economic, and eventually it will be physical persecution as well. And unless the, Lord's, the Lord decides to act decisively, I suspect that we're living in the last years of feast before the years of Famine come. I think to a large extent we're living with our heads in the sand, to be honest. We're living as though tomorrow is going to be just the same as today and yesterday. It's madness. It's actually utter madness. There's probably more reason to think that things will get worse then that they'll just stay the same. We're spending our money and building our houses under the assumption that it will last forever, that this will belong to me forever. But I think we need to wake up and seriously ask the question whether that's true. I'm not trying to be a panic merchant. I'm not panicked about this. I'm just trying to be real. I spend my days thinking, what will it look like to be a church in the next 20 or 30 years? And I suspect, and I'm planning, because I'm crazy and a little bit disturbed, I'm planning for what it will look like to be a church where this building is closed down and we have to meet in houses and we have to meet in secret. That might not happen but we're fools if we think that it couldn't. Our situation might not be as bad as the sons of Korah in Psalm 44, but there's reasons for us to be crying out to God, what's going on? Why is this happening to your people? Well, God had rescued his people in the past and God's people had trusted him. But at present, God seems to be far away from his people. Why is that? Why is God far away? Is it their fault that God is distant? I saw a clip the other day from the American televangelist Kenneth Copeland. 
Uh, and Kenneth Copeland said quite uh, boldly that God heals every person who has enough faith. And so if you're not healed immediately, then the reason is because you don't have faith enough to be healed. It's your fault. If there's a problem, it's your fault. It's not God's fault. But look at what the sons of Korah say in contrast to that in verse 17. All this has happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals and covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secrets of the heart. This misery had come upon these people, God's people, for no apparent reason. They hadn't forgotten God. They hadn't become so caught up with life that God had become a distant memory. That's easy to do, isn't it? It just happens so subtly that life becomes so bound up in all the paraphernalia of what's happening and what's going on that we forget about God. We don't reject God. We don't think to ourselves, well, God is a lie or the gospel is a lie or that it's untrue. We don't consciously turn against God, but we just forget about him. He's like that distant relative that uh, we never write to or we never speak to and we never hear from. And eventually we almost forget that they ever existed. But these people hadn't forgotten God. And they hadn't been false to God's covenant either. Or as verse 18 says, our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. They hadn't given themselves over to sin. They hadn't given them to the things that God hated. They hadn't let their hearts kind of look to other other things, other gods for, for salvation. We saw earlier that they weren't trusting in themselves. I don't trust in my bow. My sword doesn't bring me the victory. But you give us victory. If they'd begun to trust in themselves, it would make sense, wouldn't it, that God would make life difficult so that they might realise what they were doing and turn and, and seek God. But they hadn't forgotten God. They hadn't turned against God. They weren't trusting in themselves. So the message of Psalm 44 is so clearly that suffering and difficulty is not always the result of sin. Contrary to Kenneth Copeland, if there's a problem, it's not necessarily you. The Bible doesn't allow us to be that one-dimensional. Sometimes God has purposes that we don't understand and that we don't know about. And in fact, Paul quotes from this psalm in Romans chapter 8. And as he does that, he gives us a bit of a window into at least one of the reasons that God might allow us to go through such great difficulty. If you've got your Bible uh, still there before you, turn to Romans uh, chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8 from verse 28. And Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it, it is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul doesn't say God's people won't suffer. What he says is that those things won't separate us from God. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword, none of those things can drive a wedge between us and God. And Paul says that the cross of Jesus is the guarantee of that. If God could give his own son over to death and raise him to life again, how much more will God be able to deliver us through suffering and into glory? Paul says our suffering isn't random either. It's not an accident. In fact, it's for God's sake. Just as Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, so are his people. It's not an accident. It's not always because of our sin. It's because that's God's plan, that we should be like his son. Why is it uh, that it's becoming harder and harder to be a Christian in Australia? Is it because of the sin of the church? Maybe. I think it's worth asking the question whether it might be, whether the uh, reproach and derision that we suffer as Christians is because of our sin. Is the present hostility toward Christianity in Australia because, by and large, Christians trust in themselves? Is the present hostility toward Christianity in Australia the result of Christians forgetting God and becoming caught up in the minutiae of life? Is the present hostility toward Christianity in Australia the result of Christians turning from God and embracing sin? It might be. It's worth praying through those questions, I think. But then again, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just because it's God's plan that we should suffer for his glory. Well, if our suffering is the result of our sin, then the remedy to that is humble confession uh, and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But where uh, that suffering is not the result of our sin, 
This psalm, the last, in the last few verses, shows us how we deal with that. And the way to deal with our suffering is by dealing with God. Awake, O Lord, the writers say. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. One of the things I think the Psalms show us is boldness in prayer. These words are almost offensive. They seem to suggest that God has fallen asleep at the wheel. Wake up, God. What are you doing? You've forgotten about us. They seem to be offensive, but in reality, they reveal a deep trust of God. Because the sons of Korah realized that if anybody was to help them, it must be God. And so they go and they wrestle with God. And they say to God, God, what's going on? If you don't help me, if you don't do something about this, no one else can. I can't do it. We can't do it. To call on God to act is not to doubt God, but it's to trust that God's the only one who can save us. As our situation uh, as Christians in the West increasingly heads in a Psalm 44 kind of direction, we need to learn to pray Psalm 44, I think. We need to learn to pray, God, what's going on? I wonder if we ever pray that. I thought to myself this week, I don't think I pray in a Psalm 44 kind of way about the direction of our society. Is it because of our sin? I don't know. Is it because it's God's plan? I don't know. Either way, Psalm 44 gives us the pattern. God, I don't understand what's going on. Why are your people suffering? Wake up! And redeem us and build your kingdom. Why? Not because of us. Not because, you know, we've got this great plan. It's a, it's a seven-point plan and it's going to change the world. No, because of your unfailing love. There couldn't be anything more distant, more less, you know, less dependent on us. Wake up, God, and do not reject us. Don't hide your face from our misery. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, our ears have heard the things that you have done long ago. How you called Abraham to be the father of your people. How you raised up Joseph to look after your people in Egypt. How you raised up Moses to deliver your people from the hands of Pharaoh. How you raised up Joshua to lead your people into the promised land. How you raised up judge after judge to deliver your people from their enemies and those who sought to destroy them. And you rescued them. How you raised up David 
a shepherd after your own heart, to be king over your people in righteousness and justice. But most of all, Lord, how you raised up Jesus Christ, your own son, raised him up on a cross for our sins so that we might be reconciled to you, forgiven and your children. And yet, Lord, as we look at our world, we feel increasingly the derision and the scorn of those around us. Lord, we feel that Christianity is more and more the butt of people's jokes. Lord, we're more and more afraid to mention the gospel because of what it might cost us. And Lord, we don't know why that is. Lord, if it's because of our sin, because we've forgotten you, because we've turned away from you, because we've trusted in ourselves, Lord, then help us to repent of that. Help us to seek your mercy and your grace. And Lord, if it's because it's just your plan that we should follow in the footsteps of your son, if it's just because it's your plan that we should suffer, not for doing evil, but for doing good, then Lord, help us to deal with that. But Lord, we ask more than anything else that you would not forget us or hide your face from us. Lord, that you would not reject us or desert us or leave us to travel this difficult road on our own, but that you would take our hand and walk alongside us and give us the strength to face whatever it is that you put before us. Lord, help us to trust that just as you demonstrated your power in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that your power is greater than our weakness and can get us through whatever it is that we might face. Rescue us, Lord, we pray, because of your unfailing love. Amen.